find a seat, we will get started. And you'll need a new set of notes for today. We've been going over an old set for the last three weeks, but today new notes. Guys were handing them out as you came in. Anybody need a set? John has some here. You guys all have over here? Very well. Everybody good over here? Anybody need? Great work, guys. All right. Thank you all. And we will get into those notes in just a moment. want to make two announcements. Encourage you to attend next Sunday afternoon's baptism celebration. And the baptism celebration is just as the name suggests. We're celebrating the fact that God has worked in the lives of some people to bring them to the point of, of salvation and then following the Lord in obedience and baptism. We have six folks getting baptized next week. We have at least five others in the pipeline who didn't get in their application in time. So they'll be, those guys will be next time. But uh, we always have a great time with those and we have a dinner. Uh, so uh, please, five o'clock next week, just to encourage those who are being baptized. And then two weeks from yesterday or a week from this Saturday, on the 11th, November 11th, is our next newcomer's brunch. Those are at our house. And we love having people who are new to our church come to the brunch in that setting, get an opportunity to get to know you in ways that we can't in a setting like this. So on our website, there is that banner. And if you click on that, then you can register for it. And please do. I encourage you to. Even if you've been coming for a while and you've never been able to attend one of the brunches, then uh, please, we would love to, to have you come on that day. This is, this series is God's Design for Sexuality. And over the first three weeks, this is week four, over the first three weeks, we have sought to go through the three key words in that title, God's and then design and then sexuality, in order to create a framework for us to think about all issues, really, not just sexuality, but then, of course, in this, in this course, we want to focus in on issues with, with sexuality. But set that uh, framework. And so take those three key words of God and design and sexuality. And that's what we did in these opening three sessions. With regard to, to God, we saw the necessity of always starting with God. Because you have to assume God in order to argue against God. In order to use the logic with which God made his world, then you have to assume a logical God. Uh, in order to explain the existence, really, of anything, then uh, ontologically, to use the philosophical term, then you have to, you have to account for, for God. So we saw a number of areas in which that is true for morality and, and right and wrong and so on. And this is the means, then, by which Christians do what 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 5, 2 Corinthians 10, 5 says, and that is we seek to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So when you are engaging with, with someone about whatever issue, including the issues that have arisen in our day related to sexuality, but it could be anything else, you want to bring them back to the necessity and the requirement of, of God as a means of taking every thought captive, your own first, but then theirs as well, to show them that the very thoughts they have and the approach that they take must take into 
consideration uh, and deal with the truth of God. That's why in your Bible, you have passages like Romans chapter 1 and Acts chapter 17. In Romans chapter 1, we are told famously there that everyone knows that there is God by virtue of the creation, and then in Romans chapter 2, by virtue of, of conscience, that there is a lawgiver who has given standards of, of right and wrong. That's why then Paul, who wrote Romans chapter 1, when he is making his journeys to spread the gospel and he comes to the philosophical capital of the ancient world in Athens, Greece, in Acts chapter 17, he presents the philosophers there with God. And he says, you know God, that's why you have all of these statues and these images, because you were made to know God you're a worshiper, but you're worshiping in the wrong way and to, the, and to uh, the wrong God because you've rejected the one and only God. And so he begins in verse 24 of Acts chapter 17 to say the God who made the world and everything in it, and from there he goes because he knows that they know God. So the framework starts with God and then moves to design. And we saw that wrong is only meaningful against a standard of right. There's design. That abnormal is only meaningful against the standard of normal. That disorder is only meaningful against the standard of, of order. So you have to have standards of right and of normal and of order in order to ever talk about anything being abnormal or wrong or disordered. But people need to be reminded of that. Because it's easy to use the language but not think about how loaded that language is and how importantly loaded that it is. If we talk about someone having a disorder of whatever type, then we need to remind ourselves and remind others, you understand that that means that there is a standard against which that is measured and it's determined to be disordered. And then for sexuality... There is this design, the purpose that God, this God with whom all must deal, has for sexuality. And then on page 8 in the previous set of notes that we gave, if you didn't get those notes, they're posted at our website. All the recordings are posted there as well, so if you miss any of the sessions, you can catch up that way. But on page 8, we said that God in Scripture has given three purposes for sexuality, procreation, protection, and, and pleasure. Today, we want to apply that framework more specifically now to sexuality. We want to appeal to God for purpose. We want to delve into the source of our misuse of our bodies in sexual expression. There's a, there's a word for misuse. It's to pervert. That's another way to think about it. Now, you know, sometimes uh, we use that as an ad hominem kind of thing to, to as an epithet to uh, use against someone and to say you're a pervert or that's perversion. It may be aptly applied in the way you use it, but sometimes I think we, mis we use it too narrowly <laughs> because perver perversion is actually any misuse of what God has made for his proper purpose, including in the realm of, of sexuality. So we want to delve into the source of why we misuse our, our physical bodies in sexual expression or why we pervert ourselves in the various ways that, that we do. And we also want to see God's solution. 
just so you know where we're going, then after we finish these eight pages of notes, probably today and next week, maybe today, next week, and two weeks, we'll see, but today and next week for sure, uh, then we will focus on some of the more recent aberrations, more recent misuses in our final weeks together. We'll look at how to view that, how to think about it then from a biblical perspective that we've tried to lay out in these previous weeks. How do you live with, relate to people who are engaged in sexual expressions that are new to us and have raised new questions for us? How do you live with, perhaps in your own home, how do you, how do you work with uh, in your job? How do you vote with as a, as a citizen? How do we relate to each other in a country together as citizens of the same country who are blessed with the opportunity to express our voice in leg for legislation and what should be legal and what should not and all of that. So we will, believe it or not, we will uh, deal with those issues before we are done with our series. So top of page nine, orientation, disorientation, and reorientation. The biblical worldview consists of God's design and creation. That's what we mean by orientation. The fall of humanity into sin and the consequences that go with it that's disorientation and God's redemptive reclamation project to restore his creation to its original state. That's reorientation. This lesson will briefly review God's design for sexual expression, the effects of the fall in this area and others, and God's remedy for, for sin. So first of all, when I talk about orientation, I'm talking about who God is and what he expects from us. When God created humanity, that's what Adam and then Eve were first taught who God is, what he wants from them, what he expects from, expected from them, and then by extension from, from us. And the Bible says famously, you see in Genesis chapter 1 there, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, many of you, as I, have read that passage over many, many times, and it would be very easy to skip over the connection between the image of God and male and female. But it's explicitly placed there. You see that? That God created humanity, mankind, in His own image. In the image of God, He created them male and female. So in the opening chapter of the Bible, you're given a, a hint that there is something about the diversity of male and female that's connected to imaging God. So as we think about sexual expression and we think about misuse, one of the reasons that, as we will see here in a moment, that God joins a man and a woman together in marriage so that they are so that they are different they are hetero that's what hetero means opposite different homo means same so why why the difference because the god that we are imaging is a god who is both a unity and a diversity one god but three persons 
And in creating humanity, God creates then diversity in male and female, and then in bringing them together in marriage creates, creates unity. You begin to get a hint then that that is necessary in order to achieve the purpose that God has, has given if as His image bearers. And we'll see that more explicitly down the road. God blessed them and He said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So humanity was to be God's, as we've seen, God's vice regents on His earth. God is the king of His creation, but He has delegated to humanity to rule His earth on His, on his behalf and to do so in this way, to exploit the earth in the positive sense of discovering it and using it for human flourishing and good ends and all of the great things that were supposed to happen out of that. Some of them still do in God's common grace but not nearly like they were originally created to do and will be restored to do in, in the future. The Lord God took the man and he put him in chapter 2 in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. Contrary to what many of us think, work is not a result of the entrance of sin into God's world. You remember, this is chapter 2, this is before sin has happened. In chapter 3, sin happens. And then in meeting out punishments for the sin to the serpent, to the woman, and to the man, to the man, he says, by the sweat of your brow, you're now going to do your work. So God didn't say, now because you sinned, you're going to have to work. He's saying, now because you sinned, your work is going to be all the more difficult. So work is not part of the fall. Work was part of the creation. And God made us to work with our hands as we subdue the earth on His behalf, under His, under His kingship. The Lord God says as He creates Adam, He does these things, chapter 2, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now that's, notice it's verse 18. But it's not till you get down to verse 21 that God actually makes the woman. So I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but God pronounces, hey, it's not good for the man to be alone. I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to make a helper suitable for him. That helper suitable for him, as we know, turns out to be Eve and the woman. And God's already given in chapter 1 that there's, it's male and female. But he doesn't do it immediately. Verse 18, he pronounces the situation but he doesn't rectify the situation until down in verse 21. You've got verses 19 and 20 in between. So have you ever thought about why it is that God doesn't just do it right now? Rather than, I say in the notes, making the man's helper immediately, God took time to use the man's objective loneliness to create subject, or excuse me, aloneness to create subjective loneliness. See, in verse 18, God pronounced the objective situation. You're alone. Okay. And then God says, that's not good. And I'm going to rectify that situation. But he wants Adam to see that it's not good. He wants Adam to feel the weight of his loneliness. So he doesn't 
fix the aloneness right away. He wants Adam to subjectively feel it. So in between, here's what it says. The Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals, all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. Whatever the man called each living creature, that's what's, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. So just sort of, you know, picture now. God has made them to rejuvenate, to replenish, to reproduce. And so there are male and female versions of all of these. And here's Adam. And Adam has them paraded before him two by two. And as he's giving names to them, at some point it occurs to him, I'm the only one who doesn't have a counterpart. And that was precisely what God designed. He pronounces the objective situation of his aloneness, but he wants him to feel the loneliness. You need this, Adam. And so Adam begins to feel this, and that's why the last phrase in verse 20 says, you see there, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. And having created in Adam the feeling of loneliness now, and a desire for a companion, God demonstrates to Adam that he is the one who supplies man's need. L listen, friends, what you're seeing laid out here is quite profound because the Bible says it, not because I'm saying it. Here is the Lord God, the Creator God, and at the very beginning, he is making it clear to humanity that I'm the one on whom you depend for everything that you need. You need a companion, and I'm the one who can provide it. And so Adam now is in that situation. He sees that. I'm here because of the creative act of God. And I have now a, a need that I feel deeply. And I have to look to God to fulfill it. I have no idea. I can't do it. And that's exactly what God wanted. Just a quick hit, and then I'll move on. Did you know that God still puts you in situations and puts us in situations where we have to go, I can't do it, and I have to look to God, and He does that on purpose, and He's been doing it since Genesis chapter 2. So the Lord God intervenes as only He can. He caused the man to fall in a deep sleep. While he was sleeping, took one of the man's ribs closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man. He brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That last phrase where Adam speaks, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, in Hebrew, that is poetry. That is praise. That's him breaking out in song. That's how happy Adam is. Because God had taken the time to make him feel his loneliness and his need, and now God supplies this need and presents, or supplies his need and presents the woman to the man, and he sings God's praises for this precious gift. Wouldn't it be a beautiful thing if people still saw marriage that way and still saw their spouse that way? And then God pronounced the sacred words that have been used in marriage ceremonies ever since. Therefore, 
shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. So God designs humanity to be a unity that expresses diversity, including in gender and sexuality. And he designs that this unity be one flesh in marriage. A oneness that's expressed in all aspects of the, the marital relationship that we saw in, in previous lessons. So one flesh, but hetero. Unity, but also diversity. Now, that's the first couple chapters of the Bible. It's the first part of the Bible that we call the Old Testament. As time goes on and sin enters God's world, there are going to be misuses, there are going to be perversions, and there are going to be laws and regulations and all kinds of things that now have to happen as a result. And so the pages in your Bible start to fill with some of that. And people will often say, well, you know, you've got all these regulations and penalties for misuses of sexual expression, but they're in the Old Testament. It's not in the New Testament. Jesus never talked about any of this, is the, is the claim. Sometimes with regard to other issues like abortion, you'll hear it said, Jesus never said anything about abortion. And what's happening here is you have a kind of red letter mentality applied to the Bible's teaching. You know what I mean by red letter? <laughs> the words of Jesus in a lot of our, almost all of our English Bibles now are printed in red letters. The Bible I have up here is the last remaining in the universe Bible with just black lettering all the way through. <laughs> I, need, I need a new one because that's the NIV 1984. In 2011, the NIV updated but finding a complete black letter edition is almost impossible. Now, why do I insist on a black letter edition? Okay, I'll break down and get a red letter if I have to. But it's because I don't buy into the whole red letter mentality. You see, the entire word of God is the word of Jesus. The entire Bible is Jesus' word because Jesus is God. So there's nothing particularly special about the words he spoke when he was on earth. The Bible says that by him were all things created. He was there at creation. He's been God for all eternity past. So I just highlight that and emphasize that because even if what God teaches about sexuality were only contained in the first part of the Bible, that would be okay. It's all God's Word. It has to be rightly applied, but it's all equally God's Word. And the words of Jesus are not more important than the words of Paul because they're all God's Word. The words of Paul came from Jesus as well. But if you're a red-letter type, down to the bottom of page 9, Jesus confirmed the ongoing validity of the original marriage covenant millennia later. This is Jesus in Matthew 19, and he says, At the beginning, the Creator made them male and female. And he said, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. 
So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So by quoting Moses, who wrote the first five books of your Bible, including the first one, Genesis, and, and doing so in a confirmatory way, Jesus is reminding us that that is God's word. And I, God, in, come in the flesh, honor that and still honor that. And then you have the Apostle Paul. Writing in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, to the unmarried and widows, I say this, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with, with passion. Now that whole chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, is devoted to issues of marriage, divorce, and, and remarriage. And as you go through that entire long passage, Paul addresses several situations, people who, who've lost their spouses due to death, and so they're widows or widowers. Uh, you have people who have been divorced before they came to Christ. You have people who have come to Christ, and they're, spot, they're married to a spouse who hasn't come to Christ, and one of the questions they have is, should we remain together? He answers that question in that passage as well. But here he says, to the unmarried and the widows. The widows are obviously women who have lost their husband in death. For reasons that I won't bore you with now, but if you're interested, I can give you a two-page sheet that explains this. It's, to me, it's fairly fascinating, but for now, you'll just have to take my word for it. The word unmarried in that passage is used four times in that passage, in that uh, chapter. And if you look at each of those, the inescapable conclusion is that the unmarried are people who were divorced before they came to Christ. So I say there, the unmarried and widows are two categories of formerly married. The former, the unmarried, are no longer married due to divorce, the latter due to the death of the spouse. And Paul says, hey, it's, it's fine if you don't remarry. You don't have to remarry. I'm not married says Paul. So it's okay if you don't get married, but in order to remain unmarried, you have to be able to control your sexual impulses. And you were made with an, an impulse for sexual expression, and most are going to want to fulfill that. The only way that can be rightly fulfilled is within the bond of marriage. And that's why he then says it's better to marry than to burn with passion. You don't have to marry. But you can marry and should marry if sexual desire requires it. Why? Because marriage is the only outlet for sexual expression. And that's why this excerpt from the Journal of the Evangelical Theo Theological Society Denny Burke rightly says this, the only sex desire that glorifies God is that desire that is ordered to the covenant of marriage. When sexual desire slash attraction fixes on any kind of non-marital erotic activity, it falls short of the glory of God and is by definition sinful. This principle applies to the experience of both opposite sex and same-sex desire. 
heterosexual desire and homosexual desire, both, can be non-marital erotic activity. So we can sin sexually, both heterosexually and homosexually. That's what he's saying. Now, when it says there, any kind of non-marital erotic activity, including opposite sex, what all might that then include? Heterosexual erotic activity outside of marriage. It'd be a lot to fill in there, couldn't it? And the reason I'm just pausing here and stopping to have us consider it is because I want you, I want me, I want us to think about the fact that that misuse perversion includes our stuff. It includes the stuff with which we struggle. It includes the stuff with which you struggle if you're a heterosexual. But you are tempted toward erotic activity outside of marriage. And any of that fails to glorify God and is by definition sinful. All right, so do you start to get a hint now as we, in a few weeks, we start to look at, well, how do you view then some of the expressions that most of us are not accustomed to coming into and becoming more commonplace in the culture? How are we going to view that? We need to view that, you get a hint here, the same way we view our stuff. It fails to glorify, you start there. It fails to glorify God if it is outside the bonds of marriage. Marriage, according to the Bible, is the only ordered expression for sex. So that's the orientation that God gives to his world. But because of sin, it becomes disoriented. And disorientation, orientation is who God is and what he expects from us. Disorientation is our problem that distorts everything. So one question that has arisen in recent years is whether some sins, at least, are a biological phenomenon. Are we simply born that way? Now, be, be careful before you internally answer. I'm not going to ask anybody to answer publicly, but I want you to think about this, because obviously this is very important now. We start to move toward a proper view of what's going on in our world. And so, can people be born that way? Whatever that is, in terms of sin. Some point to scientific evidence that suggests that brain biology explains various sexual behaviors. Others suggest that the primary cause of at least some sexual struggles is early psychological influences in one's environment. It is true, I say here, that both biology and environment influence behavior. But the Bible presents another factor, namely our sin nature. The Bible teaches that all sin flows from a depraved heart, a sinful heart. Man's inner control center, the heart, is wicked, deceitful, morally corrupt. Now, you know what, that line there, Jeremiah 17, 9, I quoted it in our first hour sermon. And that's just standard biblical fare that Christians have believed for millennia because the Bible says it, okay? It's not flattering about us. <laughs> you know, you're depraved, 
you're wicked, you're deceitful, morally corrupt. But outside of Christ, that's the way the Bible describes humanity, okay? Deal with it. <laughs> that's what it says about us. So it's not, it's, not, it's not flattering. But it's standard. But boy, we are increasingly in a culture where people have no idea what Orthodox Christianity teaches. And so something like that just blows their mind. And maybe you're here and that just blows your mind that, that God would pronounce that verdict about, about us. I would just say to you, if that's the case, just look at what Christianity teaches is the solution ultimately. And that is God himself having to come to earth and die a cruel death on a cross. If that's the solution, then the problem must have been pretty bad. And it is. But to show how the culture is so far removed from Orthodox Christianity, if you've been following the news at all, there's been all kinds of stuff going on. Wow, lots of, lots of big stuff, right? You know, the Ukraine war is still going on, but everybody's forgotten about that because we got the Israel-Hamas war going, going on. But then, meanwhile, back in D.C., we're trying, the Republicans are trying to, who have the majority by about five votes, a very narrow margin in the House of Representatives, they've been trying to come up with a Speaker of the House. Three weeks ago, they got rid of the one they had, voted him out, couldn't decide on one, right? And so this week, they come up with a guy that pretty much nobody's heard of, Mike Johnson. I'd seen his face, I'd heard, I didn't know much about him. So I don't know how much you've learned about him in this last week, that he is now the Speaker of the House, at least for a while, see how long he lasts. There are lots of memes out there showing the latest Speaker of the House next to a head of lettuce. To see which one lasts the longest, okay? So we'll see. But you know, it turns out Mike Johnson is like an evangelical Christian. And he believes, I mean, I don't know him in full, so he may have some crazy stuff he believes, so just I'll throw in that disclaimer. But he believes just about, the things I know, he believes just about everything that this church teaches. Um, and, and so he... He said this week that there's a problem with the human heart. Now, given what I've just said here, and Orthodox Christianity has taught for millennia, we would all say, yeah, so I know why he's saying that. He's read the same book I've read about us. But here's what, what somebody has said out on social media. The Speaker of the House says Americans' human hearts are somehow flawed. And then he says, why does Mike Johnson devalue Americans' human hearts? So you can just tell that the person has absolutely no idea where Mike Johnson is coming from. And again, I'm not defending Mike Johnson in all ways because I, barely, because I barely know him. But that is what the Bible teaches about the ultimate source of our sin problems, and it comes from within but also, that second bullet point, a sinful environment can have great influence upon one's actions. The Bible repeatedly, for example, urges us to stay away from evil people and ideas. Just read through the book of Proverbs how often it's telling you to make friends carefully. Why? Because those friends can influence you uh, in, a negative, in a negative way. Therefore, the Bible teaches that sexual sin of whatever sort is the result of a corrupt heart working in combination with evil influences. The root cause is the sinfulness of humanity. 
but psychology and environment play a role, and you could add, play a role in how that's expressed. We've all got the same, we all come into the world with the same sinful heart. How we express that sinful heart is going to differ based upon factors like psychology, personality, environment, and so on. Bottom of page 10, while it has not been conclusively proven that a tendency toward a particular sinful desire is genetic, such that some are born that way, the Bible is clear that we are all born sinners. From man's sinful nature flows sinful appetites that he spends his entire life attempting to satisfy. Sometimes the combination of depravity and environment moves one to lying, stealing, gossip, or murder. I mean, like a lion. You say, really? Like that combination? of Yeah, you're born with a sinful heart. And if you're in an environment where you were raised by, a par- by parents who regularly shaded the truth, then you learn to do that. I know people like this. So you mimic that, that kind of environment. Sometimes the combination of depravity and environment moves us to a particular sexual lifestyle. But even if a person was biologically prone toward a particular sin, that would not reduce culpability. Every person is bent toward sin. But that is no excuse. Let me just, all right, you guys are all turning the page. Hold up. <laughs> just hold up for a sec. So, I, I just want you to think about that because this is all very important for how we view things that are happening in our culture. So, is it possible that a person, let, let's say, for sake of argument for now, that a person can be born with a particular disposition toward a particular kind of sin. What difference would that make before God? I mean, all of us came into the world born with a disposition toward sin in general, true? In two weeks, we'll continue Psalm 51. Psalm 51 and verse 5, David says, I was sinful from the time my mother conceived me. So the Bible clearly teaches that. So let's turn the page. And Jesus said, in red letters, for from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. So this is all due to our sin nature, a nature inherited from the first man, Adam, the guy we saw on the first page from Genesis 1 and 2. But that then raises a question. How can I be held responsible for sin I didn't commit? So you guys have, we've all you know, heard people say, or we've said, you know, when I get to heaven, here's who I want to meet first. I want to meet Jesus. I want to meet Paul. I want to meet Moses. And what I say to people is, first guy I want to get my hands on, I mean meet, is Adam. (laughs) And I want to say, you know, Adam, there's a few billion of us that like have a word with you out in the parking lot. (laughs) 
I mean, it kind of went south after you did what you did. But Adam is there, Eve is there, and you're not, and I'm not, and yet here we are. And we've inherited what resulted from their sin. So how can I be held responsible for sin I didn't commit? How can I be held responsible for actions arising from a nature I didn't choose? That's called original sin. And it has been part of Orthodox Christianity again for millennia. Now this explanation from R.C. Sproul goes on for like a page and a half. But let's read through it together, okay? Original sin does not refer to the first sin, but to the result of that first sin. The scriptures speak repeatedly of sin and death entering the world through, quote, one man's transgression. As a result of Adam's sin, all men and women are now sinners. The fall was great. It had radical repercussions for the entire human race. Adam acted as a representative of the entire human race. When the test that God set before Adam and Eve with the test that he set before them, he was testing the whole of human, humankind. Adam's name means man or mankind. Adam was the first human being created. He stands at the head of the human race. He was placed in the garden to act not only for himself, but for all his future descendants. Just as a federal government has a chief spokesman who is the head of the nation, so Adam was the federal head of mankind. The chief idea of federalism is that when Adam sinned, he sinned for all of us. His fall was our fault. When God punished Adam by taking away his original righteousness, we were all likewise punished. The curse of the fall affects us all. Not only was Adam destined to make his living by the sweat of his brow, but that's true for us as well. Not only was Eve consigned to have pain in childbirth, but that's been true for women of all human generations. The offending serpent in the garden was not the only member of his species who was cursed to crawl on his belly. If God did, in fact, judge the entire human race in Adam, how's that fair? It seems manifestly unjust of God to allow not only all subsequent human beings, but all of creation to suffer because of Adam. It's the question of God's fairness that federalism seeks to answer. Federalism assumes that we were, in fact, represented by Adam and that such representation was both fair and accurate. It holds that Adam perfectly represented us. Within our legal system, we have situations that, not perfectly but approximately, parallel this concept. We know if we hire a man to kill someone and that hired gunman carries out the contract, I can justly be tried for first-degree murder in spite of the fact that I didn't actually pull the trigger. I'm judged to be guilty for a crime someone else committed because the other person acted in my place. Now, the obvious protest is this, but we did not hire Adam. That's true. This example merely illustrates that there are some cases in which it's just to punish one person for the crime of another. The federal view of the fall still exudes a faint odor of tyranny. Our cry is no damnation without representation. <laughs> just as people in our nation clamor for representatives to ensure freedom from despotic tyranny, so we demand representation before God that's fair and just. The federal view states that we are judged guilty for Adam's sin because he was our fair and just representative. Wait a minute. Adam may have represented us, but we didn't choose him. What if the fathers of the American Republic had demanded representation from King George and the king replied, of course you may have representatives. You'll be represented by my brother. Such an answer would have spilled even more tea in Boston Harbor. We want the right to select our own. 
We want to be able to cast our own vote, not have somebody else cast that vote for us. The word vote comes from the Latin votum, which means wish or choice. When we cast our vote, we're expressing our wishes, setting forth our wills. Suppose you would have had the total freedom to vote for a representative in Adam. Would that have satisfied us? And why do we want the right to vote for our representative? Why do we object if the king or any other sovereign wants to appoint our representative for us? The answer is obvious. We want to be sure that our will is being carried out. If the king appoints my representative, I have little confidence that my wishes will be accomplished. I would fear that the appointed representative would be more eager to carry out the wishes of the king than mine. I would not feel fairly representative. But even if we have the right to choose our own representatives, we have no guarantee that our wishes are carried out. Who among us has not been enticed by politicians who promise one thing during an election campaign, do another once they're elected? Again, the reason we want to select our own representative is so that we can be sure we're accurately represented. At no time in human history have we been more accurately represented than in the Garden of Eden. To be sure, we did not choose our representative there. Our representative was chosen for us. The one who chose our representative, though, was not King George, but Almighty God. When God chooses our representative, He does so perfectly. His choice is an infallible choice. When I choose my own representatives, I do so fallibly. Sometimes I select the wrong person and I'm inaccurately represented. Adam represented me infallibly, not because he was infallible, but because God is. Given God's infallibility, I can never argue that Adam was a poor choice to represent me. The assumption many of us make when we struggle with the fall is that had we been there, we would have made a different choice. We would not have made a decision that would plunge the world into ruin. Such an assumption is just not possible given the character of God. God doesn't make mistakes. His choice of my representative is greater than my choice of my own. We bristle at the idea that God calls us to be righteous when we're hampered by original sin. But God, can't, I can't be righteous. We're fallen creatures. How can you hold us accountable when you know very well we're born with original sin? One final illustration. Suppose God said to man, I want you to trim those bushes by 3 o'clock this afternoon. Be careful, though. There's a large open pit at the edge of the garden. If you fall into that pit, you will not be able to get yourself out. So whatever you do, stay away from the pit. Suppose that as soon as God leaves the garden, the man runs over, jumps into the pit. Three o'clock, God returns, finds the bushes untrimmed, calls for the gardener, hears a faint cry from the edge of the garden, walks to the edge of the pit, sees the gardener helplessly flailing around at the bottom, says to the gardener, why haven't you trimmed the bushes? Gardener responds in anger, how do you expect me to trim these bushes when I'm trapped in this pit? If you hadn't left this empty pit here, I wouldn't be in this predicament. Adam jumped into the pit. In Adam, we all jumped into the pit. God did not throw us into the pit. Adam was clearly warned about the pit. God told him to stay away. The consequence Adam experienced from being in the pit was a direct punishment for jumping into it. So it is with original sin. Original sin is both the consequence of Adam's sin and the punishment. We are born sinners because in Adam all fell. Even the word fall is a bit of a euphemism. It's a rose-colored view of the matter. The word fall suggests an accident. Adam's sin was not an accident. He was not Humpty Dumpty. Adam didn't simply slip into sin. He jumped into it with both feet. We jumped headlong with him. God didn't push us, didn't trick us, gave us an adequate and fair warning. The fault is ours and only ours. And the Bible links all humanity to Adam's sin very directly in Romans chapter 5. Notice, 
sin into the world through one man and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all people. Now notice why. Because all sinned. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you again for the blessings of this Lord's Day and the opportunity to think upon the things that you have taught us in your word and that we need to apply to our world. Help us to think well and accurately. Help us to represent you well every day this week. Go with us, we ask you, into the places that you have assigned to us. Grant us safety. Bring us back together next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Bring your notes back with you. We'll continue.